So the title of today's message is, Is Greed Good? And it's going to be the 10th of our Ten Commandments series today, and we're going to be in Exodus 20, verse 17. If you want to turn there in your Bible or flip open your bulletin, you'll be able to read it there also. When I was 18 years old, a friend of mine invited me to a party in a section of northern Illinois called Gray's Lake. Gray's Lake is a fairly affluent suburb of Chicago where many of the rich people lived. We were stopped when we got to the neighborhood. We were stopped at a gate while a security guard called up to the house that we were heading to. And then he opened the gate and we, and we drove up. Then drove up to a house. There's another gate, little speaker box out there. Pushed the button and the gate opened up. And we drove up this really long driveway to this huge house, well-manicured lawns. We saw tennis courts. We saw pools. We saw all these kind of things. We got up to the uh, house, and there was this four-car garage. And inside, there were two luxury cars, a luxury SUV, and a sports car. And everything just around us was just screaming. This guy was very well off. We walked up to the house, and before we could even knock on the door, a butler answered the door, a really well-dressed butler, and he leads us into the, I, I, I think I was wearing like a t-shirt and jeans of this thing, so I'm, I'm feeling like I'm, you know, little Oliver coming to get some porridge or something, <laughs> coming up to this house. And we walk into this gathering, and there's a bunch of people sitting there, and the owner of the house, his name was Bill. Bill is a very charismatic guy. And he began talking to us about what dreams that we have in life. Since most of us were guys, he just asked us to a question. He said, what if you could have any car ever made, what would your dream car be? One guy said, well, I want a really nice, long, decked out Cadillac. Another guy said, I really have always wanted a Lincoln Town car. I want to drive around in a Lincoln Town car. So everybody looks at me and sees that I own a nice car. Another person said, no, I want, I want that sports car over there. It's like a Lamborghini or something. And, and it just corners. It goes zero to 60 in, in like three seconds. And you put, step on the gas and your eyeballs suck back into your head. It, it goes so fast. And he got to me and he said, you know, what car, John? John, if you had to have any car you wanted, what car would you want? And the only thing I could think of was a car I had seen on TV. You remember the original Miami Vice? I don't know if there's any child of the 80s here, but the original Miami Vice, Don Johnson drove this black convertible. It was really, really, really cool. I loved that car. I had no idea what it was. It was before the internet, so I couldn't look it up. And so I said, yeah, I said, you know that, that car Sonny Crockett drove around in during when he in Miami Vice? He goes, oh, yeah, I know that car. It's a 1972 Ferrari Daytona Spider 365 GTB. He goes, costs about 300000 I have one on order. I'm like, okay. Bill then gave us a tour of his house and of the grounds, showed us how wealthy he was. And after the tour, he introduced us to a method that he used to get all this wealth. And essentially, this was a get-rich-quick pyramid kind of scheme. And fortunately, I wasn't even close at that time in my life to being able to invest in it. And my friend had just brought me because he had to fulfill a requirement within this program to bring new people to see Bill to get them to invest in this program. And I remembered this as I was preparing this week's message. I remember... Bill, and how he used a subtle tactic 
focusing us on money, focusing us on possessions, and focusing us on wealth, and, and feeding into that to kind of get us to turn off our higher reasoning abilities and, and focus on trying to get stuff. In other words, Bill got us to covet his wealth and got us to covet his lifestyle. The prohibition against coveting is the last of the Ten Commandments. And let's read what God's Word says this morning before we really start to break it down. In Exodus 20, verse 17, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we have gone throughout all the Ten Commandments now, we have seen how they are these protective planks in the fence that surrounds your yard that keeps us safe. And I ask, Father, as we look at what it means to covet, that we see your love, we see, we see your guidance with us that wants to keep us in the center of your will because in the center of your will and in the center of your word, there is great safety. Help us to see that this morning, Lord. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, the Tenth Commandment is unique um, because the other nine commandments were focusing on things that you should or should not do. The Tenth Commandment, however, turns all that around and it points us inward. And that's our big idea this morning, is that coveting is one of the most dangerous actions described in all the Ten Commandments because it deals with what is really on the inside of our hearts and inside of our motives. And the word covet is an old word. Most of us have no idea what, what covet is. It's not something that we say in our modern day language. The word covet, from the biblical standpoint, means to have an unhealthy desire, an ungodly lust, or a selfish motive to gain something that God has not supplied to us or given to us or allowed us to have. In part, coveting is what ruined the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And it's the reason that Jesus had such stinging rebukes for him. They coveted their, their position in society. They coveted their money and their wealth. In fact, they were so greedy, they used the religion of their day to fleece the poor. Whenever they would come to the temple, they would have to, to buy a sacrifice because there's no way to bring a sacrifice from the, the far parts of Israel and make sure that it got to the temple to be able to offer it. So they, they charge exorbitant prices to be able to buy these sacrifices. And they fleece the people, these poor people, out of their money by setting up this, this money-changing and, and sacrificial animal-buying scheme that they had there. It was so bad that this was one of the few times in the Bible you see Jesus lose his temper and just really let loose. I mean, one minute it's business as usual in the temple courts, and the next minute there's chairs flying and some crazy Galilean is picking up tables and throwing them around and chasing people with a whip. That's not the kinder, gentler Jesus that people have in their minds, is it? Jesus then turns around and calls the pastors of his day a bunch of dead men. He calls them whitewashed tombs and a brood of snakes. Definitely not the kinder, gentler Jesus, is it? Their root sin was that of coveting. In fact, the first thing we need to realize this morning is that coveting is really the root 
of all sin. And that's the first truth of coveting. All sin starts with coveting something that we do not have. I refer to Genesis chapter 3 quite often in our times when we're going through the Ten Commandments because so much of our theology, so much of our understanding of, of what is right and what is wrong, of sin and righteousness, is bound up and found in that single chapter of the Bible, of Genesis chapter 3. It describes the first temptation of humanity. It describes their fall into sin. It describes the damage it causes to the human soul and the subsequent ex expulsion from God's presence that still exists today for those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In Genesis chapter 3, God gives them a simple command. You can eat from any single tree in this garden except for this one over here. There are thousands and thousands of trees in this garden. They can eat of whatever fruit they want. If they want an apple, they can go get it from 100 trees over here. If they want an orange, there's 200 trees of that. If they want a pear, they can pick that. They have every fruit imaginable available to them that they can eat of except for this one tree. And this one tree for them represented the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, do not eat of that tree. But then Satan comes. Satan comes and he places that seed of doubt within Eve. And he does so by questioning God's word and attributing God's prohibition from eating of that tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, to God wanting to keep Adam and Eve from experiencing everything they could experience in life. Satan was essentially saying, God is holding out on you. God wants to keep you under his thumb. God wants to make you a captive to some morality. If you eat of this, you'll be just like him. And then the Bible says, said that Eve saw the fruit of the tree, saw that it was good for food, saw that it was pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And she took some and she ate it. The Bible in this verse right here, it shows what the seeds and steps of coveting are. And if we allow those steps to take root in our spirit, it's always going to produce a harvest of rebellion and a harvest of sin in our lives. It shows that the first thing Eve did was she saw. She saw. She looked. Instead of immediately dismissing Satan and his temptation and trusting God and his command to her and her husband, she deliberately looked at something that God had forbidden. It all starts with the look. We know this in our popular culture. The mecca of advertising in the United States is based in New York City along a street called Madison Avenue. Everybody knows what Wall Street is. Wall Street is where everybody goes to, to trade stocks and, and, and build businesses. But Madison Avenue is known for giving us the advertising that we're inundated with every single day of our life. And we don't even realize it. I was thinking of this message yesterday. I was walking into Quick Trip, just walking from my parking space into the door. There were eight advertisements of different things sitting there just as I walked in the door. They were taped to the pillars, they were taped to the windows, they were on the sign. Just advertisements for all kinds of things like that. On Super Bowl Sunday, one of the biggest ad days of the year, Super Bowl Sunday, you know, we all put on our jerseys, we all grab some snacks, we all come together, we huddle around a TV to watch the big game. 
And the game is the main reason that we come. But what's the second thing that's unique about Super Bowl Sunday that everybody talks about? The commercials, exactly, right. Madison Avenue goes all out to make the most funny, the most creative, the most appealing commercials for this event. In fact, for every 30-second commercial that they put out, they pay the National Football League $4.5 million. That's crazy. Amen. Matter of fact, most of us buy DVRs so we can skip the commercials when we watch our favorite TV shows. Why would anyone in their right mind pay that much money for 30 seconds of people's times? Well, because it look, it works. And they know it works. Because they know that a single look can set a hook into somebody that will cause them to view a product favorably and put it in their back of their mind that they really need that product. Even if it's just a bag of Doritos, it sets that hook in their mind. It's the same tactic most of us use when we fish. I mean, we don't fish with an unattractive bait, do we? We set up the most attractive bait we can on that hook. We get the fish to start looking at it. And then the fish starts looking at it and it's wondering, I wonder if there's any danger with that lure. I wonder, I wonder what that is. It, it, oh, look at that. It's a worm dancing right in the middle of the water. How often does that happen? This must be my lucky day. There's a big fat worm sitting right there. It starts with that look. And once that happens, that look turns into a longing. Biblically speaking, this is where Satan is, is getting ready to set that hook into us. It's like we're a little baby fish swimming around the lure and we're looking at it. And we're starting to realize, man, I'm kind of hungry. Man, I really want what's being dangled right in front of me. So we move a little closer. And all the evidence that this might be dangerous fades into the background as we sit there and look at this thing that we want. And that's when Satan gives that couple tugs of the line. You ever, you ever get a fish up next to a boat? You're, you're reeling in a lure and they come up next to the boat so you give it a couple of play tugs there. See if you can get them to grab on. It's like Satan just gives us that couple tugs to give the illusion that it's going to get away. So we move closer and we, we, we really start chasing after it. And all that evidence that it might be dangerous just fades into the background. And it brings us to the next step of coveting is that Eve considered the forbidden. In other words, she reasons her way out of obedience to God and his word. It's like the fish. The fish is thinking, but that bait, that bait, it's so shiny or that worm is so fat. I mean, there can't be anything wrong with it, right? I mean, maybe just a little nibble just to make sure. I mean, I know mama and daddy fish told me to run away from worms that just hang in the water. I mean, worms don't hang in the water. They're on the, they're on the bottom or they're on the top. They just don't hang in the middle of the water. Or to be careful around things that looked overly shiny or made too much noise. I know they told all of us little fish that if it's good, too good to be true, that it's usually somewhat dangerous to us. But surely this thing in front of me is okay. I mean, nobody's going to try to hurt me. I mean, I've eaten worms before and they've never hurt me. I've snapped at shiny things and gotten a meal out of it. It's, it's okay. I, I'm going to reason my way through this. this. This worm here has to be okay. And this is where Eve is at right here. 
Eve saw, and once she considered, once she reasoned her way out of obedience, she reached out and grabbed that fruit off the tree. Coveting always leads us to a place you never should or want to end up at. The third step involves committing the actual sin. Eve ate the forbidden fruit. The action always follows the coveting. And it's like the fish snaps at that bait. And he discovers that hook hidden within that worm. And now it's being pulled against his will to a certain death to become a meal on somebody else's table. And in Eve's case, the Holy Spirit, the very essence of their creator, immediately left her and Adam. Imagine that for a moment. They had the fullness of God resting upon them as no human being until Jesus came ever had upon them. Think of the emptiness they felt when that fullness of God left. It says that they found themselves to be naked. There's only one other instance in the Bible that, that even comes close to this, and it's when Christ cried out on the cross, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? That exact same thing happened to Jesus when the sin of the world was placed upon Him. And He took upon Himself the full weight of every bad thing we have ever done. Eve hears the laughter of the evil one and they realize their spiritual nakedness. Overwhelming shame fell upon them. And they desperately tried to make coverings from themselves of things around them to hide that spiritual emptiness. That simple look, that simple start of the coveting process ended in eternal death. That simple look sent the Son of God to a cross to pay for the penalty. And that's why God takes coveting very, very seriously. Why He put it within the Ten Commandments, because coveting sent Jesus to the cross. In fact, it can be argued that the entirety of the Ten Commandments was God's response to mitigate humanity's fall from grace and build that protective fence around human behavior to keep them from harm until the perfect solution appeared, which was our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that's the spiritual side of coveting. Let's look, look at one of the practical ways that coveting damages our life and our relationship with God. And that's that coveting is the destroyer of contentment. Greed is good. Who said that? Anybody remember that movie? Actor Michael Douglas said that as he played a character named Gordon Gekko in the 1987 movie Wall Street. During a stockholder meeting, Gordon gave his famous speech that described how greed in all of its forms helps humanity break through the fog and clarify our goals so that we can be successful in life, just like him. Well, was Gordon Gekko right? Is greed good? Well, greed is our more common word for coveting. In the case of Wall Street, greed was money and power, and that they were the evidences of a person's success. For some, greed is that perfect somebody, even if they were somebody else's somebody. For others, greed is a lifestyle that we can't afford, and you're drowning in debt trying to sustain it. 
A few weeks ago when we did the, the, mess, the commandment on stealing, we said that the average family had over $150,000 in total family debt. And each individual American, statistically speaking, has $5,000 in credit card debt. Do you think that greed contributed to that? That coveting might be a factor in all of that debt? I once had a co-worker who came to work in a bad mood. He's all sullen and silent during the squad check, which was not his nature. And so I asked him, you know, what's, what's, what's going on in your life, my friend? And he said, you remember that, that deck I built at my house and I got that nice hot tub out there and everything and everybody was coming over to my house and, and wanting to have barbecues at my house? Well, my neighbor right next door went and built an even bigger hot tub, built an even bigger deck, and now everybody wants to go to his house. And I can't get anybody who wants to come over to my house anymore. He goes, so I got a plan. He goes, I have, I have the plans like out in my car. I, I figured it out. It'll take me five 24-hour shifts to earn enough money to build an even bigger deck. And everybody's going to want to come back over to my house because you know what that guy did the other day? I was standing on my deck and he was standing on my deck and he kind of looked at my deck. He looked at his deck and he grinned at me. He goes, I'm going to show him. I'm going to have the best deck in my neighborhood. Now, I don't have a problem with working hard for things you want. God blesses us when we work hard. It's a lot better than going into debt for it, amen? The problem is, is that when your possessions become objects of worship, and your possessions fill a need within you that's supposed to be filled by God. And next to physical illness, I think that most of misery in our lives comes from greed and covetousness. Greed is a destroyer of contentment. And contentment is the root of peace within our lives because contentment says, I trust you, God, and I trust what you have allowed me to have and what you have given me. I trust in that. And that's probably one of the concepts that we as Christians in America struggle with the most because our entire culture, our entire way of life is built on this nebulous thing we call the American dream. And if I had somebody that, that came over here from Luxembourg or something, and they said, what is this American dream? I would describe it as we, it is that we have a requirement and a sense that we deserve to have a nice house. We deserve to have a nice car. We, we, we have a requirement to have a wonderful marriage and family and an awesome and long retirement that somebody else pays for where we drift off into our next life with no pain or regrets. That's what the American dream is. And it may step, and I love my country, don't get me wrong, I'm not criticizing America. I mean, we have a flag up here for a reason because I honor and I love my country. And this, but this may step on a few toes this morning, but the Bible has something to say about this American dream mindset that many that even call themselves Christians within our country have. Jesus in the book of Revelation describes the Christian changing or chasing after the American dream, and he describes it like this. In Revelation 13, 17, he's writing a letter to the church of Laodicea, and he said to this church, he said, For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Does that sound like the American dream? Jesus said, But you don't realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Spiritually speaking, the American dream is placing all your trust, all your sense of self-worth, and all of your confidence in created things 
and not in your Creator. God wants your life to be centered, revolve, and be completely filled with Him. Because within Him there is safety, within Him there is fullness of joy, and within God there is peace everlasting. No matter how many zeros are in your checking account. Two thoughts before we move into the last part of today's message. One comes from Susanna Wesley. She was a mother of John and Charles Wesley. Both of them were revivalists. Charles Wesley wrote many of the hymns that you have within the hymnal in front of you here. And John Wesley was a great evangelist that just swept a trail of revival across America in the 1700s. And they, they both formed the Methodist church together. Young John Wesley, growing up, asked his mother, What is Sid, Mom? And she had this amazing quote I want to share with you this morning because it also applies to what coveting is. Susanna Wesley said, Sin is whatever weakens your reason, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, whatever obscures your sense of God, takes your relish for spiritual things away, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. As I said, she was quoting what sin is, but it also refers to coveting and greed here. Paul the Apostle gives us this advice as he was adding a thank you note for missionary support that had been sent to him. Paul started out being one of the most richest Hebrews in the Roman Empire. He went to the best school. He, he graduated from Harvard, Yale, Oxford, whatever Ivy League school you want to say, he graduated from there. One of the richest guys. And this is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4. He said, I am not saying this, that I need missionary support because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned a secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And that is a takeaway for us this morning. Don't put your hope, don't put your faith, don't put your trust in things that are created. Put your faith, hope, and trust in the Creator. Amen? Amen? The last point really quickly that I want to make is the 10th commandment serves as a bridge between the Old Testament law and the New Testament grace. As I said, the first nine commandments dealt with direct actions of how we approach God and how we live with each other. They provide the planks and the fence that is meant to, to be God's protection and God's will for our lives. But fences can, and if we're honest with ourselves, often be climbed over. We're all pretty good at climbing God's protective fence once in a while. The 10th commandment points us to a better way. Instead of erecting a fence, change what is inside of a person so that they never want to go near that fence again. The Old Testament law, whose basis is the Ten Commandments, said don't do it. Jesus in the New Testament says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me touch you, heal you, and make you a new person. 
Jesus said it's not enough not to just murder. He said don't even allow anger or hatred or resentment to build within you. It's not just enough to not commit sexual sin. Don't entertain lust in your heart. And instead look upon everyone as if they were your brother and sister. He said it's not in your actions, it's in your heart. But none of us are capable of living like this without a changed nature. And that only comes from dying to oneself and taking Jesus' nature as our own. Let's all rise. Jesus himself calls this new nature being born again in John chapter 3. In fact, it's so important that Jesus says it twice that you need to be born again. And then he moves into the most famous of all Bible passages. That said, for God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You can receive this gift of a new life by admitting that you have messed up and that you've willfully done what the Bible calls sin and ask God to forgive you of that sin and ask Jesus to become your Lord, your God, your Savior, and most importantly, your king.